0: Thanks for checking out Covenant's Podcast. Our prayer is that God uses this message to impact your life. Well, I'm back. Only this time with good news. Actually, this time with the best news. It's such an honor for me to join my colleagues, Andrew and Josh, in this series from the book of Ephesians, we're calling One. And they did such an excellent job over the last couple of weeks introducing this ancient letter to the first century church, a letter which is filled with inspiration and challenge. And whether you are here in the house or watching from the comfort of your home, we hope you'll stay with us in this series as we walk through this most important book of the Bible. As we move into chapter 2, I'd like to show you a great contrast that Paul shares with us. A contrast which explains what it means for us to be won by grace, which is the title of my message today. We are won by grace. Speaking of contrasts, Debbie and I just returned from a week in Iceland whose nickname is the land of fire and ice. This island nation in the North Atlantic has been shaped by icy Glaciers and fiery volcanoes over thousands of years, creating some of the most amazing natural wonders in the world. The rich beauty of the country can be seen in its many great contrasts. There is the pounding of water falling on solid rock. There is the height of a mountaintop overlooking a deep, dark canyon. There is a vast glacier, a frigid glacier now melting under the effects of warming temperatures. There are peaceful black sand beaches that meet the crushing white foam of ocean waves. And then there is the aurora borealis, the northern lights, which are showcased against the dark night sky. The land of fire and ice lived up to its name. The beauty of one thing is accentuated by its contrast with another. Thus, it is true of the gospel of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. In the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter two, Paul shows us a contrast that is more beautiful, more wonderful, more breathtaking, and more eternally significant than all of the contrasts of Iceland combined. It is a contrast between our dire condition before we met Jesus versus our most enviable position since we met Jesus. It is only by seeing how desperately needy we are that we can grasp how wonderfully blessed we become in Christ. So this morning we go to Ephesians chapter two verses one through 10. I'd like to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's true and infallible word. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the way of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In this passage we have some good news and we have some bad news. And it's kinda like the guy who reminded his artist friends that his work may become more valuable after he's dead. Sometime later, he came to that same friend and said, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is someone has bought up all of your paintings. The bad news is the buyer is your doctor. Well, in a similar way, Paul has some good news and he has some bad news for us in the passage, but he begins with the bad news. You may remember from previous sermons in the series that Paul is confronting a potential conflict in the first century church between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. That is, those who came to know Jesus as the Jewish Messiah versus those who came to know Jesus without a background in Judaism. There was a tendency, even a temptation, for Jewish Christians to think of themselves as better or superior to the Gentiles because they were first and because they had a spiritual pedigree as members of the Old Testament people of God. But Paul, speaking as a Jewish Christian himself, says, No, we are the same. We are one. We are equally and desperately needy of God's mercy. Beginning in verse 1, he begins to describe our natural spiritual condition before we encountered the grace of God. And here is where this great contrast begins. First, Paul says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Well, of course, he doesn't mean we're physically dead, at least not yet. We're still living and moving and breathing, of course, but Paul is here referring to spiritual death, which indicates our total inability to see, hear, understand, and respond to the things of God. This reminds me of a time when I would hear the gospel repeatedly when I was younger. I would repeatedly hear the gospel or the good news of God's salvation in Jesus and it was like it went in one ear and out the other. It had no effect on me. So scripture is telling us that our sins and transgressions, my sins, your sins, my transgressions, your transgressions have created such a barrier between us and a holy God that it is as though he were dead to us and we to him. Well, this is bad news, I know, but cheer up, it gets worse. Paul goes on to say that we're not just dead, but deceived in verse two. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is an unmistakable reference to the devil, whose mission it is to confuse us, to distort reality, to persuade us to believe lies instead of the truth. You see, the devil would love it if you believed he was a silly cartoon character that came out at Halloween in a red suit, pointy tail, and pitchfork, rather than a real spiritual enemy that would keep you away from God. We're deceived. Then, as if that weren't enough, Paul adds to the bad news by reminding us that we're not only dead and deceived, but we're damned. At the end of verse 3, he writes, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a reference to our legal standing in the courtroom of heaven before a holy and just God. The true Christian is someone who acknowledges that he or she deserves nothing good from God because of our sin. The church is one of the few organizations in all the world where in order to become a member, you must admit you are a total failure. Welcome to the Failures Club. Check out the first question that we ask those who become members of Covenant Church. We ask them this. Do you believe yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? And we wholeheartedly but sadly say yes. We acknowledge that we are dead, deceived, and damned. As the traditional old hymn Rock of Ages says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. There's an old saying that goes like this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Picture a plain, a a plain that is flat as a plain can be like the salt flats of Utah. Then picture an old rugged cross in the middle of that plain representing the cross on which Jesus died. Now imagine the mass of humanity standing around that cross, on that plane, side by side, in every direction, as far as the eye can see. Picture that. Regardless of race, color, ethnicity, social or economic status, male, female, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, Jew, or Gentile, we all stand equally in need of God's mercy in Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are one in the bad news. Then, suddenly, unexpectedly, Paul changes course in verse four with two simple words, but God. These words announce a dramatic and cataclysmic contrast, greater than all the contrasts of Iceland combined. It tells us that God has done something in the face of our death, deception, and damnation that has reversed all the fatal effects of our failure and made us better than new. Just as we are one in the bad news, praise be to God, we are one in the good news as well. This contrast between good news and bad news reminds me of the time that I went shopping for an engagement ring almost 50 years ago. My great aunt May went with me because I had little experience buying jewelry and picking out diamonds. I had of course memorized the five C's of diamond purchase, cut, carrot, color, clarity, and that all important cost but I knew little more. When I got to the jewelry store, all the rings were displayed in a glass case, each embedded in dark velvet. As I asked the jeweler to show me one ring or the other, he would draw them out, hold them in his hand, itself draped with a black velvet cloth. And I realized that the darker the background, the better, the brighter, the more brilliant each diamond appeared. Such is the case with the good news of the gospel of God's grace. Paul displays these diamonds of truth against the dark background of our death, deception, and damnation because he wants us to see the stunning brilliance of God's provision for us in Jesus Christ. He begins with the fact that we have been resurrected with Christ, verse five. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. Some world religions offer reincarnation. That is the opportunity to be reborn again and again as a king or a crocodile, depending on how you live your life. But God offers us resurrection not based on anything we have done, but because of his rich mercy and great love with which he has loved us. So give me the choice between ever repeating reincarnation based on my life, and a once for all resurrection based on his life, and I'm choosing resurrection every single time. The next diamond of good news that Paul wants us to admire is found in verse six. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, when you receive Jesus Christ as your savior, when you transfer all your hope, trust, and confidence from yourself to Christ alone, then everything that happened to Jesus happens to you. That is when Jesus was crucified dead and buried, you were crucified dead and buried in him. When Jesus was raised and resurrected from the dead, you were raised and resurrected in him. When Christ ascended into heaven and seated at the Father's right hand in all power glory, you ascended with him and are seated with him. That's what it means for us to be in Christ. Everything that happens to Jesus happens to those who believe. And then there's the third diamond of truth that Paul places against the dark backdrop of our sin. We were recreated, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created or recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. One of my favorite verses from all the Bible Perhaps a theme verse for my own spiritual life is from 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's that phrase again, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God has reversed all the deadly, deceptive, and damnable effects of sin, and he has made us better than new in Christ. Do you see the contrast? So let's repeat it. The bad news tells us that in and of ourselves, we are dead, deceived, and damned. But the good news tells us that in Christ, we are resurrected, raised, and recreated. The beauty of the latter is seen against the darkness of the former like a diamond on a black velvet cloth. This then brings us to what I consider to be the key verses in the passage. Verses that are worthy of committing to memory of you are our follower of Jesus. It is Ephesians 2:8 and 9 which if you're not yet a follower of Jesus tells you an awful lot about what it would be like for you to become a Christian. I'd like us to read these verses together out loud and slowly. Join me. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace, is God's unmerited favor. Let that sink in. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We have already seen how the good news is based on God's mercy and love, not on anything we have done or could do. And to make this even more clear, Paul restates it differently by saying, this is not from yourselves, it is a gift not by works. That's four times in one sentence that Paul seems to be pressing home this idea that our salvation, that is our right standing before God, is not something we can earn or deserve because we can't. Rather, salvation is God's gift to us, paid for in full by the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. That is the good news of the gospel. And how important it is for us to understand that. The Bible tells us that each and every one of us will one day stand before God to give, us account of, to give an account of our lives. Imagine yourself standing there, perhaps trembling and shaking before the creator of the universe, wondering what he might say, and then imagine that he would ask you this question. Why, oh why, should I let you into my heaven, a place of perfection, of holiness, of eternal glory? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tell us that no one will be able to stand before God and say, because I deserve it. I've earned it. I'm a moral person. I've kept my religion. I've been kind to others. I've given to charity. I am worthy, God, to live in your holy presence forever. Paul says, "No, that no one may boast. We are one in the bad news. We are one in the good news. And we are one by grace through faith. Therefore, there is only one answer that will satisfy the holy judge of the living and the dead. When we stand before God, And if he were to ask me that faithful question, i have been rehearsing my answer. Learn from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If God were to say to me, Bruce, why should I let you into heaven? I would say something like, I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I am unworthy, dead, deceived, and damned. But God, because of your rich mercy and great love for me in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith in your Son, and it is solely based upon his righteousness and his payment on the cross in my place for my sin, that you are pleased to welcome me, a broken-down sinner, into your eternal presence forever. That is the answer that Scripture gives us from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now in conclusion, we might ask, why does Paul write these things to those who are already Christians? The you plural in the passage doesn't refer to those who are not Christians, rather it refers to those who are already Christians, those who are followers of Christ, believers in Christ, those who have admitted to the good and the bad news, those who have confessed that they are undeserving. So it's a legitimate question to ask, why does Paul write these things? What response is he hoping to get from us who believe? And the first thing I think of is the need for humility. I think you would agree with me that humility is in short supply around the world today. And sadly, that includes the church. Humility, there's a shortage of humility and people are hoarding toilet paper. What's wrong with that? But the Bible indicates that Christians ought to be the most humble people on the planet. After all, we acknowledge that we are sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, without hope, except in His sovereign mercy. We have confessed that we are dead, deceived, and damned. There were no better than other people that were not, not, not deserving or worthy of God's favor. Humility. We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. And if you're not yet a Christian, but you've run into one of our brothers and sisters who've acted in an arrogant and self-righteous way toward you, please forgive them. And if it was me, please forgive me because we should know better. The gospel teaches us humility. The second thing that I think should bring a response to us is that we should be grateful. We should be so, so grateful. Christians ought to be the most grateful and thankful people on earth. Why? We must never forget where we're from. We must never forget what we have and where where we're going because of Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm never tired of hearing the gospel of my salvation proclaimed from a pulpit like this. I, I never get tired of it because every time I hear the gospel, it puts my heart in a humble place. It puts my heart in a grateful place. And I believe that's exactly where God wants our hearts to be and remain. And finally there's the response of faith or simple belief Covenant has always been a church where people with questions and doubts and struggles are welcome we don't assume that everybody who's joining us online or here in the house already know believe and understand the gospel in fact just the opposite We'd like to be a church where people can come and examine the claims of Jesus at their own pace, on their own terms. If that describes you, we're glad you're here. At the same time, while you're seeking to understand the gospel, you might want to be aware that God may be moving in your heart. There have been times when people have come up to us after the service and said, they thought the sermon was written just for them. But it wasn't, we're not that good, we're not that smart. What's happening is God uses the words of the Bible, especially the story of Jesus, to stir us up and awaken us to the things of God. That he, he plants within us a curiosity about the Bible a new interest in spiritual things that we didn't have before, and a growing desire to know, love, and follow Jesus. And if you're in that place, if that's what's going on in your life, then I wanna encourage you to take that next step of faith, of simple belief. Receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I remember an email exchange I had with a young woman recently who said that she had come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that that he died on the cross to save sinners and to pay for sins. But she said her faith was so new and so weak, she was afraid to make a commitment to God that she couldn't keep. And I responded in writing, I encouraged her to take her weak, small faith and put it all in Jesus and ask him to keep his commitment to her, a commitment he made from the cross out of great love love and mercy, and she did. She took that step of faith. She put her heart and life in Jesus' hands, and she's become one of his lifelong followers. So in the same way, we are one in the bad news. We are one in the good news. We are one by grace through faith, in the one God through his chosen savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory, power, dominion, and praise, both now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not spare your only Son, but you gave him, him up for us all. How grateful we are, how humble we are, as we stand in your presence, receiving the bad news, but glorying, in the good news. By grace through faith, strengthen us, Lord, for this time, for this day, that we might live in a way which becomes our profession of faith in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.